Okay, let's uh, open up these to Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. And no apologies for doing Ephesians again. Uh, there's so much in it. Verses 9 to 11. It says, um, Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Seems a bit complicated that verse in one way because there's a lot packed into it but the bit I like to focus on is the bit where it says according to the, in verse 9, according to the purpose in himself or of him. According to the purpose of him. And one of the first things that we notice about that is that it, it says God has a purpose. He has a will. I mean, some people say we don't know the will of God. Well, if you read Ephesians, Colossians and Philippians, it's pretty clear what the will of God is as things go on. But we know that God has a purpose, he has a will. I'd like you to think about all the, all the philosophies of man, all the religions there are in the world, they, they have four basic questions. I remember when I was 16 and just before I came to the Lord and I was, I was looking, like all teenagers do I guess, I was looking for answers. You know, you're not quite a, a youth, a, a young person, but you're not an adult, so you're in that, we've all been there, in that terrible gap of life, isn't it, where you, everything seems to be, you think you've got all the answers, but you haven't. And all philosophies and all people eventually ask themselves four questions. And all religions except, we won't say Christianity, but we say except belief in Jesus Christ, cannot answer these four questions adequately. First question is, people in philosophies and ask themselves, who am I? Who am I? Second thing they ask is, where did I come from? Third thing people ask themselves is, why am I here on earth? And the fourth thing people in philosophies and religions ask is, where am I going after I die? Now those four questions if you look at it, form all philosophies, all religions and even people without a philosophical idea of life or who are not religious still ask themselves those questions. And you think about it, that's what people say. Who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? And every, even political policies are framed about those four questions. 
people want to know those four great questions of life. But it doesn't matter where you go looking for answers in those things, they never get satisfied unless you get a framework of what the New Testament, what Paul calls the mystery, the purpose of God is about. And, and some of you have, have gone down that track with various philosophies or thoughts or religions or viewpoints. Uh, I did the same. You'd go off looking. I looked in Zen Buddhism, in yoga, in transcendental meditation, in New Age things, in, in Zen philosophies and, and Islamic Sufism. I went looking in all sorts of ways for an answer to these four questions. None of them satisfied until, until I found what Jesus found me. And people, sadly, it's okay to go through that stuff when you're young because that's what, what teenage life is like. It's all over the shop and you're asking yourself all these questions. You're trying to find your place in life. But when a person gets to, to be mature or even just in their 30s or after that and they're still looking for answers to those four questions, it seems to me very sad that they come to the end of their life and they haven't found any answer to any of those questions. And so, to satisfy that urge inside, people kind of make up things. They make up their own little religion. This is my little way of what I see God as. This is my little way of what I believe about the Bible or sacred writings. And so, all over the world today, instead of a, of a foundation, particularly in Western society, instead of having a foundation of Judaic Christian heritage, which is, you know, love God and love your neighbour and do others as you would have them do unto you, which is the basis of all Western society. Well, that used to be the way. When I was really young, that was the way. You know, people went to church on a Sunday. If you didn't go to church, that didn't matter. But you still had this Judaic Christian Heritage Foundation. Today, it seems to be, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as, as you're, you're serious about it. And, and what you believe, what I believe, and what you believe and I believe, it doesn't matter. Everyone's got to be tolerant because everyone's got their own little view. Well, what's that bring about? That brings chaos, doesn't it? Because there's no foundation anymore. And that, that's really right in today's society. And when, that is, when those four questions are not answered, things rush in to fill the gap. Have you ever noticed that when a godly restraining influence is at work, when that's removed, things come in and take place? I won't go too far into it because it's on, on being recorded today, but, so I won't say that you all know when we were in a former denomination, in a former church, um, you know, we set in process over a period of 18 years certain things. And I thought, rather naively, when my time in that particular denomination came to an end, I thought I had trained people who were under me but still back in that particular denomination but who didn't want to come and join us here, I thought that they um, had been sufficiently trained and modelled by 
you know, like we, you don't have to have stalls to raise money, you know, those kind of things. You don't have to put your 20 cents in to have a cup of coffee after church, which was the way when we first arrived there. But I thought I'd train people well enough so that when we left, that training would take root. But as soon as we left, within weeks, after 18 years, stalls started up again. You had to, you know, bring your own coffee, your own biscuits, and the whole thing started off again. And the Word of God tells us in Thessalonians there that one day the restrainer, who we presume in Scripture means the Holy Spirit, one day God's going to remove the restrainer from the face of the earth. That means he's going to pull back the Holy Spirit and then people's whole attitudes and their, their trueness of heart will be revealed. And God does that sometimes in history where he removes a restraining influence, his hand over people as it were, to see what they have learned, to gauge where they've come to. And when that doesn't, when, and that happens in society, when the Judaic Christian heritage of society um, is removed and the restraining influence goes back, it doesn't necessarily mean people learn to say, yes, we've got to keep these good standards of life. Something always comes in to fill the gap. That's what a wind is, isn't it? When, when cold air or hot air moves out of the road, what happens? More wind comes in to replace it. More air comes in to replace it and that's what we call a wind. So when the wind's blowing, it, all it is, is 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 replacing hot or cold air that's moved off. That's all the wind is. And so that's what happens. And so when that, that those those four questions can never be answered without a foundation of the understanding of the Word of God and God's will and purpose. But when that's removed, or when it's no longer believed, or where it's no longer considered, something will come in to fill the gap like a wind and it happens to be a wind that will blow you this way or that way according to man's fancy. And uh, I mean, one of the great catch cries that people say today, that there's only one truth or to say there is no truth except there is no truth. There is only one truth and that one truth is there is no truth. Everyone can have their own version of the truth. As soon as we go by Helen's version and Colleen's version and Lana's version and Brian's version and Peter's version and John's version. As soon as we go by our own makeup, our own version, things fall apart. God has given us a version, he's given us a foundation and that's what the word of God says, that we can know God's purpose, we can know his will. Ephesians 1.9 says, having made known to us the mystery of his will. It once was a mystery. Once God's will and purpose was a mystery. But now it says he has made known that. So we can know what God's will is. In verse 11, um, it says, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We know he has a will. So what is his will? You find it in verse 10. It's phrased in different ways in the New Testament, but verse 10 tells us what God's will is. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, God, he, 
might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. When the fullness of times comes and God has, God has declared that this age will finally come to its conclusion. We don't know the timing of that but life isn't just going to go on and we were watching a movie we turned off the other night about supernova or something and it was about this great fireball of the sun coming to destroy the earth or whatever and it was just boring and so wrong anyway we just turned it up, it wasn't going anywhere anyway. And, but the world's not going to end like that. The world's not going to end by some cosmic accident. God has a purpose. He has a plan. And all the times and all the ages are in his hand. Remember that when we were kids, uh, we used to sing that song, God's got the whole world in his hands? Okay, that, that's the truth. All the universe, all the cosmos, everything, every age and every, everything that there ever is, God has a plan for. And in the fullness, meaning the end of the, the fullness of times, God is going to gather things in heaven and things on earth and he's going to make them complete and fulfilled in one person, Jesus Christ. That's the basis of his will. And so we know what his will has. And his one purpose, he has this one thing he wants to accomplish. From the beginning to the end of the Bible, we're told uh, initially in like a parable, in the Old Testament because it wasn't clear but when the New Testament time came Jesus came and died on the cross it became a bit clearer by the time Paul was at the end of his life then all of a sudden there became this revelation of how it all fitted together like a huge jigsaw and what it was was this in verse 10 that in the dispensation means the economy in the economy of the fullness of the times all ages, all dynasties, dynasties, everything that man has ever done, in the fullness of time, when God brings things to a completion, what's he going to do? He's going to gather together in one all things in Christ. Some Bibles say, say God will sum up all things together in Christ. And this is a fascinating phrase. Because this is the actual will of God. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, he's working, 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 everything is being together. Man has free will, but God overrides uh, not man's individual free will, but man, God overrides the corporate will of mankind to do his own thing. So when, when the first United Nations tried to start, which is the Tower of Babel, when they tried to do their own thing, what did God do? He intervened and he caused confusion. So, Babel means confusion. So, the Tower of Babel means confusion. And so, whenever man tries to override God's purpose, God allows that for, for a season, but he's always trying to cause it to come back under track. But eventually, he removes his restraining force and that which is trying to overcome God's will has free reign for a season and then God causes um, often through prayer 
and the work of the church, something to happen that redirects that. And so people say, why did God allow Hitler to do all the things he did? Well, first of all, God is not going to override man's individual free will, but he will override corporate humanity's will to accomplish his purpose. And we might say, what good, what good came out of the Second World War with Hitler? Well, we don't understand the mystery of it because we're not God, but one of the things that deliberately and very clearly came out of the Second World War was the re-establishment of the modern state of Israel. I mean, historians are amazed that, you know, you can go through the Roman dynasty, the Greek dynasty, uh, Alexander the Great, Napoleon, um, Hannibal, you can go through all the great dynasties and things on the face of the earth. And, and all sorts of, I mean, the Carthinian Empire was lost itself, the Roman Empire lost, the Greek Empire lost, all those great empires lost. The Jewish Empire was lost. It lost its land, it lost its capital, it lost its priesthood, its religion, it lost its temple, it lost its sacred things. And every other dynasty on the face of the earth that has ever lost those five things that make a community, a people, a people, have never been restored except one, Israel. And the word of God says in Isaiah, it says, in a moment I will bring back my people from the ends of the earth and restore them. At the end of the Second World War, when six million plus Jews had been killed, the British Prime Minister at the time, because the, the British had weren't getting any gunpowder from America. Americans had put an embargo on that before they joined the war. Britain had no more gunpowder. It didn't know it was running out of supplies. It was going to be defeated and overrun by the, the Germans. And the British government went to a, to a, um, a Jewish chemist, scientist in England and said, we want you to develop something because the time is getting very, very serious. We want you to develop something like gunpowder, that will save the day. I can't remember all the details, but at the end of it, after about uh, seven months' work, he discovered a way of making what we would call fake gunpowder, of, of, of alternative gunpowder. He made that and they began to manufacture in England. And that actually was one of the, the things that saved England from being overrun because they were now able to supply their own munitions. At, when the war was finished and the Germans were defeated, the British government went to this, to this um, Jewish, living in England, Jewish scientist and said, your work has virtually saved the country. What do you want that your grateful country can... Do you want a knighthood? We'll give you a knighthood. Do you want to be paid five million pounds? We'll give you five million... Do you, what do you want? He said, I want one thing. I want you to declare that the land of Israel will now again be restored to the Jewish people. That's all he asked. It was called the Balfour Declaration. And in a moment, overnight, the British government passed it and Israel, in a moment, just like the prophecy said, was restored to become the homeland of the Jewish people again. That is what came out of the Second World War. As, as well as there was all, awful things happening, out of it came this change that the Bible prophesied 
Israel must be returned to its land before the Messiah comes back. If Israel had not returned to its land, the Messiah could never come back because that's what the prophecies of Zechariah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah are about. But God didn't override and stop Hitler. I must say that God allowed six million people to die cruelly simply to bring about Israel. But God will override man's corporate will in order to perfect his will. So God says, I will sum up all things in Christ. And the word to sum up and to gather together means to bring back and do what we did this morning, to focus on Christ who is the head. That's the first thing it means. And the second thing it means is to, to bring back to a point when no separation exists anymore. So at the end of the age, and now God is working at it, he's bringing all things together to focus on Jesus the head and to bring together all humanity, things on earth and things in heaven, to a point where there is no more separation like there was in the beginning. And so God, think about what it was like at the beginning, before sin. There was Adam and Eve, they had a perfect relationship with God before sin. There was this perfect situation. The Word of God says the gathering together is not just to gather together and focus on Jesus, it's also to bring back to a place, to a point where there was once no separation and there is no separation anymore. So God is summing all things up and he's working and he's bringing that jigsaw together to bring it to a point so ultimately all things in heaven and all things in earth are going to be focused on one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Word of God says that he might have the preeminence, the influence. And also, it brings all things together to the state that was before any separation existed. So we talk about paradise, Milton's great poem, paradise, Paradise lost, the fall of man and the great hope that the Bible holds out is paradise regained. So then in paradise there was no separation between God and man. Paradise was lost at the fall. But the great day is coming and will be summed up when paradise will be regained to a point where there's no more separation. That's our great hope. You know, we live 70 years, 80 years, 90 years if you're lucky on earth and our life can be full of pain and can be full of problems. And so some people call it the veil of tears, this veil of tears because all of our life, all of our lives, haven't they, have had a measure of pain and tears and upset and that's what human life is like. People try to live the most perfect life and say, I don't want any stress, any hassle. That would be lovely but life's not like that. Life was full of, I mean, Jesus himself was full of, you know, accusations and misunderstandings, eventually a horrible, horrible execution. Life, the veil of tears is there. And we focus in our own little 70 or 80 years and think, oh, woe is me and the trouble. We're a little cog in the great plan of God. And if we haven't got God 
to answer those four questions, what happens is you despair. Or you say, blow it. I'm just going to please myself and I'll live my own life and I'll do what I want to do and I'll live how I want to live and I'll treat people how I want to treat them and if they get in the road and I walk all over them, so I'll please myself with more sex or more drugs or more money or more power or more influence and people please themselves instead of pleasing God. And that's how they try to answer those four questions that all humanity tries to answer. But only in God do they make sense and only in God does this veil of tears and these 70 or 80 years that we go through make sense. And Paul says anyway that our life is just but a moment in God's plan. And whatever we go through now, no matter how, and some people's suffering is great, it's awful I know, and some people's stress and pain is awful, but when we're there, in that completed, restored state with him again. We, I don't know whether we remember it or whatever, but if we do remember it or look back on it, it, would, it will be to us as just, just like that, a twinkling of an eye. And it will be as nothing. That's why it says that Jesus was willing to go through the shame of his death. I mean, he was the incarnate Son of God. He was in glory with the Father. He voluntarily chose to fulfil the Father's purpose to come and live as one of us with all our pain, with all our aches and problems, with all our temptations and issues of life. That even the beginning, his, his brothers and sisters didn't agree with him, the, the religious leaders didn't agree with him, his disciples misunderstood him. All these things went on but he was willing to go through that for one thing, to be, play his part in the plan to fulfil the purpose of God. He gave up his glory and the perfectness of heaven. No problems in heaven, no pain in heaven, no, no anxiety in heaven. He gave up that to come here and to experience the kind of life that we live. And only you and I know what that kind of life's like with all its issues and pains. And it's hard, isn't it, for us to understand how God can leave the perfectness of a beautiful place like heaven and come and oh, live here with all its sin and its anxiety. That's why the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. He so loved the world despite the issues. He so loved it that his son was willing to say, yes, I will come to fulfil my father's business. And as Paul said, right at the end of his life, he said, it is finished I fulfilled the Father's purpose. I have paid the price. I have suffered as they have suffered. I have become, not only am I the son of God, I'm also the son of man. I know what it's like to be a man. I know what it's like to be human. I know the human condition and all the stress. He was willing to let that go to come to here to suffer it. And sometimes if we stop and think about that, we think how great is the plan and purpose of God that he should do that and live like us. But he did it and came down and was humiliated for one purpose, that we with him might be exalted. That's our great hope, isn't it? The great purpose we can know and he's going to sum that up and gather all things together in him. 
So how is that going to be accomplished? How's this great summing up? How's this great accomplishing going to happen? Well, it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, in whom we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him, this here it comes, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He's, God is working all things according to his will. Everything that there is on earth, whether we understand it or not, everything is being coming together. He works all things. Everything God speaks, everything he's planned, everything he's doing, everything he's about, everything he's doing like that, he's doing is connected to his purpose. God just doesn't say, uh, I think this week I'll cause a war over there. I think this week we'll have a cyclone around Carnarvon. I think that this week uh, this is going to happen. He doesn't do, and he doesn't just let things happen. He has a purpose. It even says, if you quickly go over to, you don't have to, I can read it to you. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18, it says, Thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established the earth, who did not create it in vain, who formed the earth to be inhabited. Even the creation of the earth is not by accident. That's what the word of God says. So, as soon as you begin to believe things here on earth are by accident or um, a comet passed through the planet earth and um, some little microbes fell off the comet and they came to earth and after billions of years they kind of generated to a little cell and later on they became this, that and the other. By accident, as soon as you say things are by accident, we deny the word of God who says God formed it with a plan and his purpose was that the earth might be inhabited. That's his purpose for the earth. So things don't happen by accident at the beginning and things are not going to finish at the end by accident. There's not going to be some great whacking supernova or UFOs or aliens come down or by accident and end the earth. It's not how it's, there are aliens, but they're demon powers. They're not UFOs and men and it didn't start by accident. What's happening on earth now and your life and my life is not an accident and it's not going to finish by an accident. There is a purpose to this and God, it says in Ephesians 1.11, he says, who works all things according to the purpose of his will. All things. Everything that God has created, everything that he's working on, everything that happens to us as Christians, everything that he's about is for a purpose and it's his will and he's working it out steadfastly, steadfast and to us it looks messy, doesn't it? I always remember one person said, life on earth for believers looks messy and uh, some of you ladies have obviously done tapestry work or something at times. When you look at the back of the tapestry, there's lots of knots, aren't there? And, and bits of wool hanging out and it looks messy. And you, you can vaguely see the pattern from the back of it, but boy, is it messy. 
So you turn it round the other side and it's gorgeous. There's the image, there's the pattern, there's the colours. But when you turn it back and you look at the back side of it with all its knotted bits and bits here, it just looks not together. You can vaguely make out the pattern but you can't see it all. So we're on the back side sometimes, isn't it? We can't see, we can see the pattern but we can't yet see the perfect beauty of it. And, and, and so what God says is if we look away unto Jesus because he is the centrepiece of it all, we will begin to see the other side. We'll begin to see the perfection. How it all comes together, how it all works and as we do that, the reason God allows us to see that is because that encourages us that God is at work. In Romans 8.28 it says, We know that all things are working together for good. The Bible says we know it. It could have just said all things are working together for good to those who love the Lord. But it doesn't say that. It says we know. So we have to ask ourselves a question. Do you and I know, really know in our hearts and minds that everything is working together for good? It doesn't mean that God says, ah, there's Dell sitting in here doing a bit of uh, work on her paving. I think I'll just trip her up and cause her. That's not what it means at all. It doesn't mean God deliberately inflicts pain and punishment on us. That's a part of life, isn't it? That's it. Um, whether it was Dell who was at fault or whether it was the brick she tripped over at fault or, or it doesn't make any difference because we all suffer something in life that may have been our fault or may not have been our fault or may have been nothing to do with anything but things happen to us. That's life. That's not what it means when God says all things work together. He means all things together. His great view, his overseeing, his great purpose, all things are working together. And the word of God says we know that all things are working together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called ones according to his purpose. So I want to encourage us this morning to those four great questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where on earth am I going? Can only really be answered in understanding God's purpose. It says in Isaiah 45.18 that he created the earth. He formed it to be inhabited. And nothing with God is an accident. He allows certain things of the human condition to happen to us but he's always right there beside us to get us through. I mean, he could have stopped Jesus from being crucified if he wanted to. And Jesus himself said, all I have to do is to call on the Father and he will send me 12 legions of angels. I forget what a legion is, but I think it's 12,000 troops or 6,000 Roman soldiers. If God just sent one angel to, to the Golgotha where the cross was, that would be enough to scare the Romans and everyone off. Just one angel. 12 legions of holy beings straight from the throne room of God. That will cause every demon, every human, every Roman soldier, every Sadducee, every high priest, every, to, to, to bolt like anything. But Jesus said, I choose not to do that. 
allow the human condition and the things that I have to go through to happen to me for this is for a greater purpose. Now you and I will never suffer like he did in that way. And even if we could suffer a physical torture worse than crucifixion, which in itself was pretty, pretty awful, we would never suffer the, suffer the mental anguish of bearing the sin of the world. You think, you know, sometimes I think about life and I think what it's like for just one person like me or you to bear the stress and anxieties of life. And sometimes it can really get you down, can't it? You think, I can't take any more of this. Well, imagine you trying to carry your spouse's stress or a friend's stress as well. That's a double whammy. You think, there's no way. You try to carry three or a dozen people's stress and anxiety, you probably, your heart will probably fail and you die because it will be too much. Let alone all the sin of the world that has ever been from the beginning to the end. No human being could ever bear that stress, that amount of burden on the heart, the soul and the spirit. Only Jesus could bear it. And bless him, he bore it exactly the amount of time the Father wanted him. So he died precisely at the time that the lambs were being sacrificed in the temple to show that I am the true Lamb of God. So if God can do things right on target at the exact moment they need to be done according to what he did in Jesus and that nothing's by accident, that there is a plan and a purpose, everything is clicking together like that. You know, here's dear John, he came to salvation, bless him, you know, Terry witnessed to him and he came to salvation and, and a person as they get on in life might say, why did I have to wait all these years until I found Jesus? Well, we don't know the mystery of that but because we know that all things are working to good, there's one thing we can say, that God knew the perfect timing for John to come. And John may not understand why he had to go through all those years before he knew Jesus but now he does. And I, and I don't know why some people uh, are brought up in a Christian household and they just flow in the things of God and they never have trouble and they just move on and God and everything's hunky-dory. But others, a Christian parent, I mean, the great anxiety in any Christian parent's heart is, will my kids grow up to know Jesus? And sometimes, for some reason, I, I know great men and women of God. You know, Reinhard Bonnke in, in South Africa preaches to a million people at a time. People get healed, great things happen, but his children are not saved. How is that possible? You think, I don't understand it. Now, they may come into salvation before they die, they may not. I mean, I think two of his kids are, but the others aren't. How is that? Why are those mysteries, why are those things there? Well, we don't know, but the one thing we can know is that all things are working together for good. And whether you come to the Lord early in life or late in life or whether your kids follow Jesus or they don't, or they come later on or whether this happens or that, whatever, we can stand back and say, the pain and anxiety of that, I don't understand. The mystery of it, I haven't a clue about, but this one thing I know. And I hold on to that. All things are working together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called ones according to his purpose. So God says, I've created things for my purpose, not for mankind's purpose. I haven't created them so that pastor can have a big church. 
I haven't created things so that people can do their own thing and enjoy life and mess up the world. I haven't done All things are working. I've given man free will. Why does God give man free will? To test their heart. If Paul and Lana just said, well, we're going to let little Joseph do whatever he likes in life, you know. He can sit at the meal table and he can make whatever mess he likes and when he's five years old, if he wants to run off in the middle of a meal and have fun, he can throw his food over the table. They're not going to do that, are they? What they're going to do, without, like all of us, you're going to teach your kids, you sit at the table and you behave and you eat and, and you train them to use a knife and fork, you train them to have manners. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But what we do is we train kids up. And eventually, we take our hands off them and say, we hope that what we put into them and instilled in them is going to work. That's how God treats us. He trains us to a point where eventually he can say, now you have to learn to stand as no longer my children, but as my mature sons, which means men and women in Scripture, you stand to become mature to be able to do what I've instilled in you. As we said last week, when we're born again, God gives us his divine nature, but the rest of our life is his divine character being formed in us. So, don't be surprised, as Peter says in Scripture, when these things happen. Why are you surprised, he says, that these things should happen to you? There are things in God's life which tries to form and train us and eventually says, now I'm taking my restraining power off of you. I'm still here with you. I'm just standing here, but I've retake my restraining power off of you in order that I might see the condition of your heart to see if you've learned what I've been trying to instill in you. It's been said of the North American Red Indians that when a boy is a, a, an age to become a man, they used to take him out into the, into the most fearful place in, in, in the forests where, where there was great fear, wild animals and that, and the father would leave his son there without a light, without food, without a blanket, without any protection whatsoever, and he would leave his, his, his 12-year-old boy in the depths of a forest in North America, and he would say, I will come back tomorrow morning to see how you've got on. And of course, the boy would be totally fearful. And it depended on whether that child, the boy, cried all night long or ran back, found his way back to the village or not. If he stayed put, and they found him in the morning there without moving. He was regarded to have been a man. But what the boy didn't know was that the father would go back, head off back to the village and unknown to the boy would creep back and just sit and squat behind a bush only metres away from him to watch over him all night. That was the way they bought... That was the way they bought their... Uh, the, the, the young ones are. No, he's off. So that's like God, isn't it? He might remove his hand to see whether the conditions of our heart are good enough to be mature. But he hasn't gone off back to his throne and said, Oh, you'll be okay, Sharon, you know, I'll come back in twenty one years and see how you're getting on. He doesn't do that. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's, he's, the Bible says, even though God seems afar he is closer than our breath. Isn't that great? There are times that all of us we know we think, if you're a long way away, he says, no, I'm not. I'm closer than your breath. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's God's great promise. Jesus said, I'm going back to the Father, but I will not leave you 
comfortless, I will send you another comforter, the Holy Spirit, who shall be with you forever. So whatever we go through, life is not an accident. Earth is not an accident. The end will not be an accident. It's a plan, a purpose, and God's working all things together for good. So we can know God's will and we can know exactly where he's going. I'll just read you this quote from Austin Sparks and this is what he said. He was a great man of God and sometimes we put some of his teachings up the back. And towards the end of his life, he came to the realisation that Jesus was the centre of all things. And this is what he wrote. As believers, what we are after is to see the centrality and universality, universality of the Lord Jesus. And he is, by divine appointment, the centre of everything in the universe. And every phase of life and every aspect of earth, he alone is its explanation. That's true, isn't it? What we are after is to see, to actually know that the centrality and universality of Jesus and that he, by God's appointment, is at the centre of everything in the universe and every phase of life and every aspect on earth, he alone is its explanation. Why are we here? We're here because Jesus is God's purpose and he's invited us and called us to share it. Why are we, where are we going? Well, we know exactly where we're going, that in the fullness of time he's going to gather us together to a place where he alone is the focus and where there is no more separation and it will be even better. You know, some people say, well, one day everything's going to come together and it's going to be like Adam and Eve in the garden before, with God before Satan came in. It's going, to be, it's going to be better than that. Better, if you can imagine, than that. Because the point was, there was a possibility of deception in the garden. When the final thing happens, there is no more possibility of deception. That's what makes it better. I don't understand why God allowed deception in the garden. I don't understand that but he allowed it. Maybe it was to test mankind's heart. But when the end comes and where we're going to, there will be no deception and God has something planned beyond our possible understanding. So yes, there's a veil of tears and yes, we will break our arm and we'll hurt ourselves and some people will die of disease and problems will be in the family. But all things, according to the human condition, are working together for good. To those who love the Lord, that's the condition. If you love the Lord, you'll see it. And those who are the called out ones according to his purpose. So we have been called out and also he calls us to love him. That's the condition. To love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind and with all our strength. You know, that's the only one commandment out of the ten we, as new Christians, were called to keep. The others we should keep, 
But the one commandment that we should all keep is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself. It's called the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Why? Because the first, I love God. Other people can love their neighbours self and do what they want unto others. It's easy to do that relatively. What's hard is to love the Lord your God. But when we do that, all things will work together for those who love the Lord. Amen? Father, we do pray that um, if there's anything going on in our own lives or people that we know around us that are real issues, Lord, that we will do what the Word says. We will know, really, truly know, despite the problems and the pains and the hassles of life, that indeed all things are working together for good. The Word says that these things will happen for one reason, that Jesus Christ will have the preeminence. So let's keep him preeminent. That means high lifted up. It's him that's focus. He's what we live for. He's where our strength is. He's where our comfort is. He's where the power is. And if we run the race that is set before us with endurance, it says, we shall finish the race that God has purposed for us. Amen.